Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise Podcast number 18. Today, we are talking about fear and learning. But first, a quick recap of last time. Last episode, we talked about curiosity. There are two types of curiosity. There are interest-driven curiosity and deprivation-driven curiosity. Interest-driven curiosity creates internal motivation and keeps us interested for the long haul. This is in contrast to deprivation-driven curiosity, which happens when you feel like you're missing a specific piece of information and you really need to know it. It's like an itch that won't go away until you scratch it. This is less rewarding. There's that initial sense of satisfaction when you find out that missing piece of information, but it doesn't keep you driven to continue coming back. We experience both types of curiosity in our daily lives. Which type of curiosity do you experience more often? Just give yourself a moment to reflect on that. Before we get into today's episode, let's try something. So the first thing you're going to do, I'm going to come into a seated position. So those of you watching this on YouTube can actually see this. I am sitting on a chair. You're going to expose your MTP, MTP joints, which are the balls of your feet. An easy way to do this is to simply pull your toes up a little bit as you lift your heels. So I'm seated. I'm pulling my toes up a little bit and my heels are slightly lifted. I'm going to press the balls of my feet into the floor. Raise your arms up. Lower your arms down. Do this a couple more times. You're just raising your arms up. Lowering down. Now lower your heels, relax your toes, and lift your arms up and down. And just see if the range of motion feels different. For me, it certainly does. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see that my arms don't go as high. Why is this? It has largely to do with the fact that your feet are anchors. Which means they slow things down. They also provide sensory input particularly that area right at the MTP joints, right where the balls of the feet are. That area is really good at detecting pressure. So when you place pressure on that area, it creates a sense of security in your system. And when there is a sense of security in the system that takes the brakes off and allows uh, your, your range of motion to be more fully expressed. Which brings us into today's episode. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I'm learning this new drop in silks. I think it's kind of ridiculous. You are upright, pretty high up, holding onto the silks behind you, and then you let go, dive forward, and rotate your body into this star shape until you come to a screeching halt. Saved by the silks. This is scary. This is a dive forward situation. It's hard to control the speed. It gives me a moment of pause. The very first time I did this skill, I 
as soon as I let go and began diving forward, my whole body caved in. That was my fear response. This is the response that is seen often when I do a new drop in silks. It's just a thing. My flight or fight. We all have a way we like to respond when there is a scary situation or when we're experiencing fear. Something that goes along with that is our somatic response. When I initially tried this particular drop and I got into that position, I felt butterflies. I felt a little bit constriction through my throat. This was just my body telling me, you're afraid of this particular situation. What is fear exactly and what does it have to do with learning? The definition of fear that I found in actually this really great paper is that it's an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. One of the reasons I experienced fear when I'm learning a new drop in silks is the unknown. I don't know where I'm going to stop. I don't know what it's going to feel like. This unknown is scary. It creates a fear response. Once I've done the drop a few times, I learn what to expect. I learn when I'm going to stop. I learn what it's going to feel like. I also learn ways to control the speed of the drop so I don't have to go as fast. I also need what's important with something like silks or with pull or handstands or anytime you're doing something where your body is oriented in an unusual situation in space is you have to trust the support that you're going to get from whatever it is. I have to trust the support in silks of the silks. I don't trust that the silks are going to hold me, I'm never going to be able to navigate my fear response. So take a moment. I just want you to think, can you recognize the experience of fear in your body? Do you know what that feels like for you? Do you know what your somatic response is? If so, what is it? As I said, mine is pretty clear. It's very consistent. I've experienced this when I'm lecturing in front of new groups of people before. I'll get butterflies, my throat will constrict. It's gotten a lot better the more I've practiced public speaking, and that's because the act of public speaking is becoming a lot less unknown to me. I, I do a lot of public speaking at this point. So I actually get just the tiniest bit of butterflies before I start speaking, and then they just kind of go away at this point. But that didn't used to be the case. All of these responses that I have, that you have, that we all have when we're in a situation where we feel fear, they occur because the brain has higher cortical functions. The brain is really good at detecting threats through both internal and external cues. And what does this mean? What is an internal cue and what is an external cue? Internal cues are bodily states like arousal and thoughts. Thoughts like, will the silks hold me? 
Or what if I didn't do my rap right? Or what if I'm not high enough? Those are all the thoughts that can run through my head that can create a fear response in silk specifically. External cues are elements in the environment, like the height of the silks or the height that I have to climb, or whether or not there's a protective pad underneath me in case something doesn't go well, or what the instructor is telling me, how the instructor is phrasing things. When I gave the public speaking example, my internal cues are, am I prepared? What if the audience doesn't like it? And there are ways that I've learned to navigate the internal cues by being overly prepared, by ensuring that I am giving a talk that is appropriate for the audience that's in front of me. The internal cues in silk start to dissipate when I start to learn. I know how to do this wrap. I consistently do this wrap. I'm comfortable with this. I know how high I have to be. I've been told. Our response to threat is based on the probability of an aversive outcome. So what are the chances that the outcome is going to go not go well? When it's something you've never done before, you don't know. Or maybe you do. Maybe like in silk class, I've seen other people successfully complete this drop. So I know that this is something that is not going to likely to lead to my imminent death. But yet I still was scared because I personally had never done it. Probability of the aversive outcome is low. Another example is if I know whenever I hear my little white dog bark that something bad is going to happen. My somatic response to Bob barking is going to be a freeze response of some sort. I'm going to freeze. I'm going to listen. I might feel that same butterfly sense or that same clenching of the throat. Or maybe both. But if I learn, as I have learned, that Bob barking is an empty threat, I become desensitized to the sound. I don't experience the same somatic response or same heightened arousal levels. In fact, I can tune Bob out because his bark is an empty threat. It's not a concern. We remember what scares us. Several regions of the brain work together when you're exposed to something that creates fear. Very similar to how several regions of the brain work together when you're focused on something or when you're observing something. The thing is, though, when there's a fear response and all of these regions of the brain are working together, a lot of neurons fire together. And when a lot of neurons fire together, the memory of the event is imprinted. So we can go back to this drop in silks. Had there been an aversive outcome, the regions of my brain that fired during that would have imprinted strongly that that was a very bad thing to be doing. Do not repeat that. Because the thing is safety of the system, and when I say system, I mean you, is our brain's 
highest priority. So how can it protect us? Well, it can let us know when something is a really bad idea. What does all of this mean for skill acquisition and movement? When my silks teacher was teaching me this particular drop, she commented that she wasn't sure how it was gonna go. Historically, I've been scared of going very high on the silks or dropping forward, but I went for it. I went for it because I have learned that my initial, when I was first learning silks, my initial response to going high and my initial response to diving forward was not consistent with the probability of an aversive outcome. I've learned that I'm going to successfully be held by these silks, that nothing terrible is going to happen. This allows me to keep challenging myself. So even though there were butterflies and my throat clenched and there was a little bit of fear, it wasn't so much fear that I was unable to complete the task. And it wasn't so much fear that I had this memory imprinted that this was a really bad idea. I've also learned that with these drops, as I become more proficient at them, they become less scary. I have more control. I learn how to slow things down. I learn how to end in the way that I want to learn. But what if that weren't the case? Then, like I said, this imprint of the experience would be very strong. So this is something to consider. Because like I said, you've got this internal, the internal environment that creates a fear response. We have a lot of power over the internal environment. We can change the self-talk if the probability of an aversive outcome is low. There are a lot of ways to do this in therapy and I strongly recommend seeking professional help if you do have any sort of phobia or any sort of thing that creates a consistent freeze response that you can't seem to get over. But if there's something that doesn't create so much fear that there's a fear response, but it creates enough fear that you can feel the somatic responses, then you can actually do a lot just yourself to start to work with that. You can begin to explore changing the narrative. If you step back, and you observe the thoughts that are going through your head. And you look at them curiosity, curio curiously. And you say to yourself, that's interesting. What happens if I reframe that? And you change the internal dialogue. That can change your relationship with whatever the thing is. Public speaking, for an example. Again, if you're not having so much of a fear response that you're unable to public speak, you just feel uncomfortable every time you public speak, then you can observe that and 
explore changing something. For me, one of the things I've learned is every time I'm about to public speak, I always do a little bit of movement. Often more or often more energetic type stuff. I get some of that anxiety out. And then I feel calmer. And then I can more easily change the dialogue that's going on in my head. The I can also change again my preparedness. How prepared am I to do the thing that I'm about to do? If I'm adequately prepared and I know that, my confidence is much higher than if I'm not adequately prepared. If I'm learning how to handstand and I've never learned how to fall and I consistently try to kick up in the middle of the room without a clear exit strategy, my relationship with that movement and how I execute that movement is going to be very different than if I understand what my exit strategy is and I can easily perform it. What about external cues or external? I shouldn't use the word cues. What about what's, well, I guess, yes, the external cues in the environment. What are they telling you? If the external cues are telling you that this could be a harmful thing, that's going to feed into your response and your memory of the situation going forward. So when we look at this, again, from a movement skill and acquisition standpoint, if my silks teacher told me, Jen, this could be really bad, (laughs) there's a high risk involved with this particular drop. Am I going to want to do the drop? How's that going to make me feel? Am I ever going to be able to move past that? If my handstand teacher says your chances of hurting yourself are really high, every time you try and handstand, how am I going to perform that skill? How am I going to execute it? Am I going to execute it easily? Am I going to feel confident in my ability to do this? So the words that are being said to us are external input, and they matter a lot. The things that you read about whatever it is that you want to do, they also matter a lot. So if you're reading a lot of things with messaging that something is potentially dangerous or could potentially harm you, that's all going to feed into how you perform certain movements and your relationship with those movements. I share this because there's a lot of talk on social media and a lot of talk on the internet about how to prevent injuries, as though injuries are a foregone conclusion, as though you are definitely bound to hurt yourself at some point. Yes, at some point, I will probably slip on ice or trip going up a stair, or be not paying attention and bang my elbow on a counter or on a cabinet. Chances of this are high. I'm not going to be able to prevent that. 
unless I focus on being present. So maybe presence, the act of being present is the prevention. Because movement itself is not inherently injurious. If you're experiencing pain with movement, then you need to explore a different way of moving. But just the act of moving or just the act of exercising or just the act of running or just the act of doing the silks or just the act of whatever it is that you're going to do, they're not, it's not a foregone conclusion that they're bound to cause some sort of damage to you. And I care about this because I think we're limited by a lot of these beliefs that are circulating. And the only way we can change that is to change what we're ingesting externally to focus on people who are giving positive messaging, people that are saying you're strong, you're capable, you can learn. And also with our inner messaging. I'm learning something new. This is a little bit scary. Let me step back and observe my reaction to this for a moment. And let me ask myself some questions. Am I physically prepared to do this movement? Am I in a place that is safe? Am I properly supported? The answer to these questions are yes. And it's something that you want to do. Of course, don't do something you don't want to do. Something that you want to do. Then maybe it's worth giving it a try. Thank you so much for your time. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up. Also, just a quick note, I'll be talking about some of the mindfulness movement and exercise topics January 12th through 13th in Las Vegas at the Biomechanics Movement Summit. You can find out more information about that on both my website, jenpilati.com, or the Biomechanics Movement website. All right. Have a wonderful day. And until next time, thank you.